Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. I'm super excited to welcome Frank Zimmerman to the studio today. A native of Oceanside, Frank graduated from Oceanside High School and Miracosta College, and he attended San Diego State University to earn a bachelor's degree in vocational education. Frank teaches digital video communication, he runs the audiovisual department, and he's the longest standing, most winning coach at Oceanside High School, beginning his career there in 1996. In addition to coaching at Oceanside High School and Miracosta College, Frank also runs the Oceanside Beach Soccer Championships, and he's been involved in the Soccer Club of Oceanside since its beginning. Not only has Frank won Cal South Nike Youth Soccer Coach of the Year, CIF San Diego County Soccer Coach of the Year, and North County Times High School Male Sports Coach of the Year awards, he's always placed an emphasis on developing players through his highly effective leadership style that's focused on family. My experience being connected to Frank Zimmerman and learning from him, one of the best soccer coaches in the United States, it's had a profound impact on my life and also fast attack leadership. Frank, welcome to Surfacing Leaders. Thanks so much, Mark. I only came because Anya asked. Because uh, Anya asked. keep it real. Yes, that's awesome. That's great. Mark's daughter, Anya, is one of my favorite players, and I'm so glad that she reached out to me. I was more happy to hear from her than you. Just yeah. joking. Just, just joking. joking. No, I know. That's good. Well, I know you're. if you're joking with me, then things are still good. Yeah, so that's good. Absolutely. So, so Frank, let's start off with just a little bit of background, like where you're from, how you grew up, and get us to today. So give us a little background on who Frank Zimmerman is. All right. Well, I'm a brown gentleman named Zimmerman. Yeah, my dad's German, blue eyes, but mom Mexican. They met in Texas. I was born there during the Vietnam War. Dad was in the Navy, met my mom, and I was born during the Vietnam War. He was deployed at the time, and he came home when I was six months old. They uh, had a tough time in Texas. Couldn't get married in the church down there. They encountered some racism. So thankfully, he was stationed to Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, where they quickly realized that there wasn't as much trouble being an interracial couple. So they decided to retire here when I was five years old, and we made Oceanside our home. I've been here since I was about six months old. So Oceanside's really the only place I know. Just real quick, like, it's so interesting to hear you say that because it, you know, if that happened today, it seems like so like out of what, it's like, it was like 300 years ago that that happened. You know, doesn't it feel like, like, wow, like really in the- Mark, I, I mean- you asked me to say who I am. I have my, I'm very proud to be Frank Zimmerman. Right. But people don't realize I don't know any of my dad's family. None of them. He took my mom back to Indiana and I, and we experienced some racism and we never went back. I don't know any of their family. Wow. Soccer took me to Indiana a few years ago. The team that we were there with finished the tournament. So I borrowed the team van and, and I made the pilgrimage to my dad's hometown and found my grandpa's grave and 
made peace with it. That's the only time I've ever went back. They were saying some pretty nasty things to my mom and I when I was a little baby. So my dad cut them off and I don't know any of them. And I never missed them. My mom and dad, my brother and I were enough. And my mom's family in Texas was enough. But it was just something that in California, we're such a multicultural, diverse, and Oceanside specifically with with two things, with with the military bringing such diversity and the fact that we have such a high Samoan, Asian Pacific Islander population here, which is melting pot in Oceanside, which I absolutely love. I yes. love that. Yes. And it's really a big piece of who I've become. You know, my dad put me to work at 10, you know, man's He's man. He's a good German man. <laughs> man's man. And, and, and I'm Mexican, so I still have three jobs. So <laughs> I was very happy to work for my dad at the liquor stores that he managed when he got out of the military. So I got to see a lot of the other side of Oceanside that has been really cleaned up. But Oceanside was rough when I grew up. Hill Street, now Coast Highway, served that military community. I got to see the other side, prostitution, the drugs, the alcoholism, the bleeders, as my dad called them, would donate blood and come across the street from the blood bank with their $2 bills and buy port wine from us at the liquor store. Mm. It was crazy in the 80s, 70s and 80s in Oceanside. And I remember wanting to, I was so proud to be from this wonderful place that I grew up in and everyone looked down on us. And I just had this idea about wanting to change it, Mark. And so I was dabbling in music. I worked in the music industry, as you know. Yeah, tell us about, about that. Well, oh, I do want to know about I that. I started as a DJ and I ended up writing songs. I was a record producer for a while. And that that's part of my story. I signed to Warner Brothers at 21 and I worked in that industry for a bit. And I thought that would be my gig, but I also very much Oceanside got my girlfriend pregnant and had a kid very young and decided when he turned five that I needed to uh, raise my son. And so uh, the other thing I was doing the whole time, having played college soccer at Miracosta College before signing that contract and leaving college and going into music, was coach. I was coaching at Oceanside High. So I left the music industry in my, like, a 26 and started coaching full-time, working security at Oceanside High. Just, I dropped out of school. Actually, I got kicked out of school, to keep it real. <laughs> and I went, got a job as a security guard and started just rebuilding my life to raise my son. And I got to tell you, I just had this thought that I was going to try and help change Oceanside's image. And a mentor got a hold of me and said, you're doing all this stuff with music and coaching, and you're not going to make a dent unless you pick one thing and really focus on it. And so at that point, when I left music, I decided, all right, I'm going to pick soccer. I'm going to change Oceanside through soccer. I'm just going to put all my emphasis on that. And and then hopefully I can make enough money to to raise my my kids. So I I doubled down and decided soccer was going to be it. And took a job coaching at Palomar College, accepted a job as director of coaching at the soccer club of Oceanside, the Oceanside Breakers. That's where I got to know you because Anya here was a seven-year-old and I convinced you to coach a, a team for us. And then, of course, coaching at Oceanside High. Uh, I had been coaching JV and freshman, but then at that time I took the varsity job. So I've been 
the varsity coach at Oceanside for 29 years, the director of Breakers for 29 years, and now I'm at Maricosta for the last 11 years as head coach. So I played at all three, and I'm proud to have now be the coach at all three. Yeah, that's great. Let's go back to the view of Oceanside from people outside of Oceanside. Because I was when I was down stationed at Point Loma Submarine Base, you know, I lived in Fashion Valley. And there was, without even, when I said something like, hey, I'm going to go up to Oceanside, I'm going to go to Camp Pendleton and, and go on the beach there, there was always this like negative stigma, you know, even if no one had ever been to Oceanside. Hmm. What was it? What Was it deserved? Was yeah. it? Uh, it was deserved. It was rough. Oceanside was a, there, there was gang, there was and is still some gang violence, drug issues that they still linger to an extent. A lot of it's been cleaned up. Gentrification is taking care of some of it. If you come downtown, Oceanside now, beautiful hotels and restaurants, you, but you can take a left or right turn in Oceanside and find yourself in some trouble if you don't know where you're going. Or You know, you can also, thankfully with being a DJ, I could go into almost any neighborhood and be hired to play a party. And I had friends in almost every neighborhood because music was a great equalizer. However, if you were looking for trouble, you could find it in Oceanside. Right. And if you weren't looking for trouble, you could find it in Oceanside too. <laughs> <laughs> Oceanside deserved its reputation. And a lot of communities and people were afraid and looked down on our town with good reason. It needed to be cleaned up. And a lot of praise needs to be given to the folks that have systematically cleaned up parts of Oceanside. The work's not done, but it's known for a few things. It's known for great restaurants now. It's known for some world-class yes. resorts now. You know what? It's known for a world-class soccer resort now. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, we had Leslie Gall on a previous episode and you know the transformation that's happened even since we've been here since 2000. It's been amazing. Now, there were, I think at that time, there were six, and I'll put quotes around this. There were six gentlemen's clubs that were in and around the city. And the last one went away just, I believe, last year. And also, I think when I really look at it, because we've been here for 23 years, when I look at it, I think the Marine Corps did a much better job of having the members who were Marines, these are 18, 19 years old, you know, young men who are trying to blow off steam. I think they've taught them that they need to really respect the the community that's there. And so I think it's been a, I think it's been a nice push towards that area. Like you said, you could be at a, a great property in downtown Oceanside, but then very quickly you're like, oh, oh. <laughs> you um you you know, you saw the town catering to that younger marine demographic, you now see much of Oceanside catering toward the family, beach going, resort seeking. It's it's kind of a hundred and eighty degree transformation. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm very happy to see. Yeah. There's also a lot of local people that aren't happy with some of the change. You know, there's always gonna be that. But it's a much better Oceanside to, you know, for the changes, if I may say so. 
Yeah, to, to live in and to have a family and to raise a family and to be considered as part of North County. Absolutely. I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you know, Leslie, you know, when we were working, you know, doing beach soccer, she was the statistics in and around people driving from Los Angeles to do a staycation in San Diego. And they, all that money and everything drove right by Oceanside. That's right. And uh, she said, hey, we got we to change the image here. And, and I think the image is more wholesome. Yeah. Um, and like you said, there's going to be some people who are like, hey, where's the sleepy little Oceanside town? And I still think pockets exist like that. That's true. Yeah. So, so it's good. I really want to start delving into you as a leader and as a leader in the different organizations that you're in. And what I really want to break it down to is you as a leader, as a coach. And in in soccer, you know, what you taught me and you said to me, hey, you're going to be a great coach and you needed a coach for seven-year-olds and you somehow rang me into that. And I can tell you during my first year as a coach, I mean, I had this concept of, I thought, how I could teach others to learn soccer and teach people who you know, we're barely seven or eight years old. I had this concept of what I thought because I just took previous experiences that I had in business and said, hey, this is how I can teach. And I can tell you in that first year and after going to the week-long youth national soccer course, I mean, it changed me tremendously. Yeah, as a leader, when we look at it, perspective of a coach. But, you know, a lot of companies today are really struggling with the speed of business and the disruptions that are coming at them. And then they're having this entirely new group of Gen, a, Gen Z and, and, and millennials. 75% of the workforce by 2025 is going to be this really young group. And a lot of them don't have experience in how do we operate in disruptive environments. And I can tell you very frankly that the leadership skills that you and I learned 15 years ago, they don't work anymore. Because the speed of business has accelerated so quickly. So what I would like to try to get down to and have you share as an understanding is how do you teach how do you teach soccer to a player and how do you teach them so they can be successful? And I'll just add one other thing and then I want you to go on and 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 share with us. You know, in the beginning of a game, you start off with, say for example, you got four defenders three midfielders and three forwards. And the other side has maybe the same thing, same formation. And you start off in this strict formation. And then when the whistle goes, it's like the shifting of players all over the field and the players collectively being able to make adjustments and be able to scan the field and make those adjustments without the coach having to be able to direct Mm. everything from the sideline. Mm. So let's break it down and, and go down to the the essence of, hey, maybe we start with like younger players because they don't know anything That's about right. soccer. So where tell us, how do you approach that as a coach? Because I think it'll give us a lot of insights. All right. Well, first, Mark, you showed up as a relatively experienced player looking to coach your daughter. You had played overseas even at a pretty high level. You were riding your bike. You were ripped. You were in great shape. You had military experience. And I thought, oh, crap. This guy's not even ready to coach his daughter like one iota. (laughs) Because you had to break everything you knew about the game to coach a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So what you needed was to know your audience. And and the worst 
thing you can do as a very high-level person is try and teach a beginner. Okay? Later in our relationship, you taught me the most important thing you've ever taught me, which was hire for as a leader. Hire for attitude, train for skill. I'll get back to that. Right. Okay? okay? I'll get back to that. The high-level player, the highest-level player I coached was a young man named Jamel Wallace who was drafted by the Seattle Sounders after going to San Diego State, where he went after playing for me at Oceanside High. And Jamel was not a very good coach at first because he couldn't understand why players couldn't just do it. Just do this. Because he could just do everything. Right. He could backpedal faster than most people could sprint. He could touch it with his left or right and put the ball anywhere he wanted. So why can't you? He couldn't understand how to scaffold things from where you are to where you need to be because he could just do it. Oh, do you yes, know what I mean? Yes. So now how is a four-year-old going to just do anything? Right. And if you don't understand how a four-year-old thinks, right, how they learn, and you're a 14-year-old or a 44-year-old that played 20 years ago at a high level, and now you've got a four-year-old daughter and you expect your 11 versus 11 years of all this experience to apply to that four-year-old's experience, okay? You're not prepared to coach that four-year-old person whose head's bigger than their body, that doesn't understand the properties of a ball rolling across them or to them, who's very egocentric, right? okay? Whose mom is the most important person in their life. And when mom is, wants them to be a nice person and is saying, share the ball, pass it. But you know, through your training, that Jean Piaget, the Swiss theorist, says that in their stage of development, they're not meant to share. Right. So you don't want them to share. You want them to dribble and be a meat-eating, selfish little player and dribble and dribble and just learn the game. But mom is trying to create this wonderful, nice, sharing player. And every time she says, pass it, honey, pass it, she's undermining what you're trying to do, right? If you don't understand all that stuff, you can't coach that player. So you had to go take the national youth license and shed a few tears and break yourself and become the coach that you became. Do you see what I mean? Oh, that that is, I mean, that is so great because we have all these experiences we have in our life and we just assume, you know, when we assume stuff, it doesn't work out so well. We assume that... They have the exact matrix of decision-making in their head as we have it. And why can't they get it so fast? But we always forget like, hey, we couldn't dribble a ball before either. That's right. Yeah. Or what are you talking about? We play for the Tigers. One, two, three Tigers. And they're like looking around. They don't understand these things that have become part of our living, breathing, daily team life. They don't get it. You're, you buy them the pink princess ball, your daughter. And you take that ball to practice, and that ball is by some other girl's foot, and you're trying to tell them some instruction for 13 minutes, <laughs> and they have a four-second attention span, right? and they're looking at their pink princess ball next to their teammate, and now you've started a fight. Right. What you need to do is tell mom to leave the pink princess ball in the truck, and you have identical balls. That's one less obstacle between you and training. You have to like set up the environment because you have to remember the environment is going to help facilitate training. Do you know that they're like a light switch at four years old? They go hard for four minutes. They need to rest for four minutes, but they don't need a four minute rest. So while they're resting physically, you're going to have them doing a relaxation activity where they're doing some skill. 
They're breathing heavy, but they're resting, but they're doing something with the ball, right? Because the one minute water break is like a 14 second water break and they're right back in your face looking for more fun. So you got to be ready for that. And then right after that practice, you're off to your 12-year-old practice, which has to look completely different. Talk to us about that. But the skilled coach knows that they can handle a 30-second instruction. They're better built because they're a little older, right? To take about 30 seconds of instructions, they can combine in groups of six to eight, right? They can move from simple to complex. And they can actually play in groups of like seven versus seven without any problem. They can combine and share right? And they're ready to play the full game. They can actually deal. They can actually deal with the version of the game that you played in as an adult. Just three years later, four years later, they understand playing for the Tigers, right? And while it was four years old, mom was the most important adult. And at six, seven, eight, nine, dad is the most important adult in a normal situation. At this age of 11 or 12, a significant adult outside the family you, teacher, pastor, coach, is now the most important. What's your role now? But if you don't understand those things, how do you lead? Right. Your words are critical. If you're scolding that kid, they don't want to come back to practice. If you're praising that kid, maybe they want to come back to practice. If you're P&P sandwiching that kid, positive, negative, positive, when you're wrapping your coaching points around it, maybe they're developing. Maybe they're begging to have you back as coach. Maybe they're making a better team. Maybe they remember you forever. Maybe that's just another player in the thousands you coach on their way to success. Captain at Berkeley. Right? Yeah. You never know who you're going to touch. The bottom line is, is you can't coach those players unless you do your work to be prepared to coach them all. And... Mark, some of us get to coach all those different age groups and all those genders, but you cannot take the burden of coaching those teams without being prepared. Switch that to management. Switch that to anything. How can you take on a job if you don't do the homework to be prepared to lead? Mid-level management and business, principal at a high school, assistant principal at a middle school. You pick it. Right. It doesn't, it's not just a job with pay. It is a responsibility to get out, do the work, and be prepared to lead. And I'm going to tell you, you said a, a whole lot in your question, so I'm trying to say it all. Yeah, that's good. Before we talk about the 4-3-3 three, three, and that team being prepared to go out there, the team has to form, storm, norm, and conform. They have to know who each other is. So with my college team, the other day, they found out that one of my returners, grandma died, and it was really hard on him. And that the mom raised him and his four siblings alone. Dad left when he was four, so he has to be the man of the house. And guys, I know I'm an a-hole sometimes, but that's who I have to be at home because I'm the man of the house. And I'm not sure that I'm doing it right, but I had no other example. Mm. And all of a sudden, you could see his teammates going, that's why he's like that. Wow. Right. Yeah. And then the other one's like, man, my dad's abusive. I've been getting beat up my whole life. And you could just see guys going, wow. Right. And as the story, as everyone starts letting their story out, you start to see the empathy and the compassion come and the judgment starts to strip away. 
and the communication and practice starts to increase. And the hugs after we bust our butt in the running at the end of practice mean a little bit more. And the storming goes to norming, gets to conforming, and the team starts to do better. Perform. That's yeah. right. Fantastic. So when we talk about the younger players, and I know we're talking about, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds, we're teaching them how to dribble. We're teaching them how to pass. Talk to us about how you take a person who knows nothing, how to do any of that. And talk about your role in, in teaching them to do that. Okay. So first things first, I think in education, I've taught for 21 years. I'm currently only teaching at the college, but you have to have benchmarks or standards that I think you need to teach to, coach to. Understanding where a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old should be with regard to those skills. So at this age, they should be able to do these skills with this amount of proficiency. And whether they're at the skill level below or above it is important. And if they're below or above it, or excuse me, if they're below it at a certain level, we have to remediate. So in our club, we actually have a Friday set aside for those players to get some extra work in. We give them homework. We actually have pod, excuse me, podcasts. We have uh, videos we send them to do some homework on their own. That was really popular doing during COVID. We would send some free videos from different organizations that had those available. Just do this stuff on your own in your garage, on your living room floor, in your patio to try and get them to the competency level for their age. But really functional, usable skill for their position is difficult when you can't then apply it in a team setting and then manage it and measure it, excuse me, in a game environment. And that can really only come from practicing games, really. And then the level of that practicing game, that that can only really come at the hands of the coach. Right. Like, like, like what's really difficult in this country and what I promised myself I would talk about today, so I'm going to put it in here, is you and I benefited from unstructured play in our generation. And I think it's the biggest thing that Anya's, general, many generations after us suffer from. Like Anya, Anya's sitting between Mark and I, for those listening, and I love Anya. But I'm going to shock you, Anya. I walked to kindergarten across Coast Highway. Six blocks, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, every day. I just walked to school by myself. That was how I grew up. The worst thing that happened to me, I got stung by a couple bees. (laughs) That was, I I was supposed to come home before dark, don't tear your jeans when I was playing. Simple rules. Yeah. Unstructured play is the point. I just got to go create my fun. It wasn't on my phone. It wasn't on a video game. It was go out in the world, get home before dark, don't tear your jeans. I had so much fun. I mean, I fell in off my bike and I got in dirt clawed wars and I did all kinds of crazy stuff. Whatever ball showed up at the park we played. Sure, I got into a couple of fist fights and a couple of trouble things and you guys didn't get to do that. But you know what? I also learned problem solving. I became a leader. 
I became a follower, which is important to become a leader. But the thing that I want to really point out is that organically, the person that's going to lead that team is going to earn respect through their actions, period, end story. They're going to either earn their way into that role or earn their way out of that role. And that, I think, is the most important thing I can say. Right. It's a very important, almost consistently true fact. You are going to keep yourself in a role or earn your way out of that role as a captain of a team by your actions. Words are words. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. So when we get down to teaching, so someone doesn't know how to pass the ball, like like what I learned through the U.S. youth soccer, and for those people who are listening right now, it was such a joy to see Frank coach because we would have all the teams that were at the same field. And you could see Frank's demeanor as a coach. You could see it change tremendously going from teaching eight-year-old girls how to play soccer. And you would have to then cross the field. And within that time frame, you were teaching 18-year-old boys, which needed a different leader and a different coach and a different demeanor. Now, I can tell you that I didn't pass my C license because they had me coaching for my test. They had me coaching 12-year-old boys. And I was sitting there going like, hey, let's play Sharks and Minnows. And they're like, what? Like, who are you? I couldn't make that jump to that piece. So I think it's a, it's, it was a joy to see you be able to have those experiences as a coach and then bring those to get the best out of the environment and the people who you were teaching. As we look at like practices and, you know, business owners are trying to teach people new ways of working. They're trying to teach themselves new ways of working. The old framework that, you know, we always had to have more of the decisions made at the top and then we would direct them down to others. And there's hierarchy and there's structure. Like that's all gone now in the business world. So leaders are trying to teach themselves new tools and new skills too. And I love the reference to Piaget and how do, you know, because he was really interested in, in how do children and how do our brains work to develop thinking and concept of critical thinking. And so take us through, you know, this thing of a practice and how you organize even the practice and how it builds from individual to... So some of it's mechanical. You play golf, right? Have you ever played golf? Yes. So I was a decent golfer, and I had a coach get a hold of me once and say, you're all over the place with your putting. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you're a really good putter, but if you feel good, you putt great, and if you don't, you putt terribly. You need a a routine. I'll never forget this. Hmm. So he gave me a routine. So like when you're not feeling great, you'll only fall so far. I'll never forget that. So I developed this routine. So when you have your A game, I'm draining everything. When I have my C game, I'm still not going to fall to like F. Right. Okay. Uh, Okay. So knowing Piaget helps you to be consistently solid with the little ones, right? Because you know that they need to be protected to be individuals because they're not going to share, right? And you have to keep the instructions brief. And I had to be fun, Frank. Right. With little ones. I didn't need to be a disciplinarian. I had to avoid using no, stop, and don't because I understand the science. Okay. With an 18-year-old, whole different Frank. They needed me to be a different Frank. Right. They needed me to be 
the Frank that I always was, the Coach Z, where if I had to come in and direct the practice a little sharper, that was, I became fun Frank through training. I think I'm a nice enough guy where I had that in me, but I was the old school kind of authoritarian coach first. So I, you mean in the beginning of your career? You yes. Were high, and, yes. And what shifted that? I think I can do both still. Okay. But a, coach, a, a master coach told me, show me a coach. I, I'll tell you what it was. I was at college practice when I was 26, and I had to do an 11-year-old team right after. And it was cussing, literally. And I'm a recovering swearaholic. I try not to swear anymore, but I'm cussing and yelling at these college guys. And I got on the freeway, and I had to do a 10-year-old practice. And I'm like sitting there decompressing. And I called my mentor and he said, show me a coach that can coach 19-year-olds and nine-year-olds back-to-back. That's a coach. So I just made a goal. I got to learn to do that. And it took me a few years and I, f- I figured it out. You just have to be able to, and it was through information. Right. I need to understand what makes them work. And it's the psychology of who they are. So understanding your players, understanding your employees, understanding your people, understanding and what who you're stage serving. they're at then, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. You have to get down on your knee and serve those little ones. You have to raise your level up and serve those older ones. They need you to be who they need you to be, right? The older ones sometimes need you to just step back and let them go. Sometimes they need you to step in and lay the hammer. Sometimes they love you for that. Believe it or not, you're the only authority in their life. You know, it's funny, Mark. Hire for attitude, train for skill. When I hire a coach on my staff, there's one thing that you didn't mention right now that I think I need to say this. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Do you know this is what I use when I hire a coach? Do you know the game? Can you teach what you know? through demonstration, through words. Can you communicate verbally, electronically, right? Can you be an authoritarian when it's required? Super important. Not all the time, but can you be an authoritarian? That makes you a good coach. What makes you great is do you have charisma? That's the thing no one talks about. No one talks about charisma. Can you be a Pied Piper? Can you command a room? Can you... Stand and deliver. Can you rock a mic? Can you, you know what I mean? Yes. The ones that are great have charisma. And that's like a clearly defined line I see is there can be a lot of good coaches, good teachers, but the ones that have charisma, they can be great. And that's something that is very hard to teach. Yes. Yes. Okay. So let's wind it back. You can be very scientific and learn all these things and be very effective. Right. But your great leaders are almost always going to have charisma. It's like this it factor, this thing that puts them over the top. Um, when you talk about authoritarian, because I've seen this too, and and we we probably say it in a different manner, mm-hmm. is um, what you're doing, because I've seen you do this with your players, is you're being author- authoritarian because you have really high expectations of them. Okay. And so it's being able to set really high expectations. So say, for example, you've taught them to behave a certain way in a practice and you know that they can behave that way and they're not focused. And, yeah. and it's really bringing back that. And what we say is, because we have 
You know, we have very young people who are in, in businesses. And I think a lot of leaders discount young people. And what we say is, because when the submarine force, 110 people average age 23 years old, we had really high expectations of our young people. So when you say authoritarian, I think you're saying it from from that perspective. I know I've taught you this, and this is the way you know how to behave so, and act. Super, almost negative connotation when you use the word authoritarian in right. today's day and age. Let me give you some examples. Coach, I can't make it to practice today. I have to work, right? Here's my response. Thanks for the message. You're expected to be at practice every day. So make your correction, okay? Right. I'll talk to you about it tomorrow. That's it. Right. If he calls me with it again, I'm going to have a meeting with him personally. And if he does it a third time, I might remove him from the team. Because early on at our college, for instance, they're expected to be there. Every It's a class. Everything we do, it, and they can't miss. But they're at the junior college, for example, because they have trouble in their life making these kind of commitments. And so another example, coach, I, my mom is sick and I think I'm going to need to help take care of her. Thanks for the call, man. No problem. Family first. Right. And coach, I'm sorry I mispracticed yesterday. My mom was sick. Why don't you just call me? Right. Just let me know. All right. Okay. Next time, coach, man, my mom's sick. I'm going to miss again today. Perfect. Thanks. I oh, understand. you just taught him a skill. That, right that, there. That's the point. Yeah. Okay. So, so the authoritarian thing is we're going to address things, but I'm going to teach them what you taught me once. I hate my phone. I would, I mean, I once told someone, Anya, I would never email anyone like 20 years ago. And your dad said, Frank, sometimes in a group text or in a text, just say, got it. So that we know. I mean, remember that, Mark? It's like 20 years remember, ago. Yes. So, so I teach people that. That's awesome. Hey, hey, just say, got it. Just acknowledge these are the parts of this is what I'm talking about. It's it's little small skills like that. Yeah. What I love about what you just said is there's a certain piece of it because the message that you send to one, because they have a, a different priority in their life than the collective team has, the message that you send to one is sent to all in that manner. That's one. Number two is the message that you send to one by showing them empathy is the message that you send to all two. And so, you know, when I'm coaching people, I always ask them a question, hey, what day of the week are, are you most being watched as you're, as you're leading your company? Mm. And they always say, oh, maybe it's Monday? Is it Tuesday? And I said, it's 24 seven. If, if you're out at a restaurant on Saturday night and some of your employees are there and you act like a jerk, they're going to see you. So, so I love your your way that you're taking a look at this and saying, "Hey, the message to one is the message to all, and it's a message of love, and it's a message of high expectations." And and it's it. Young man was sick yesterday. He's like, "Coach, I think I'm going to stay home. I'm sick." And I said, "We have the clinic. Our athletic training room is basically a clinic, and he expects you to check in when you're sick." because he needs to track it. But if I check in, he might make me take a COVID test. I said, that's the point of checking in. So if you stay home, you're going to have to check in when you come tomorrow. And if you miss practice, you're going to miss your start on Sunday. So go check in. Okay, coach, I understand. That's This is what I mean by being an authoritarian. I'm going to hold them accountable 
to these dumb, if I may say it that way, 18-year-old thinking patterns to help them grow up a little bit during their time with me. So when they emerge from our program at 20 or 21, they're a little bit more ready for the world because I am completely engaged. I coach men's soccer in the boys to men process. <laughs> That's exactly what I am trying to do. Oh, I, I just love want that I just want them boys to men. I just want them to oh. to grow up a little bit when they're with us because I'm not producing professional players. I'm just trying to produce professionals, you know? That's it. I, I'm not going to produce pro players. That they're not almost no one's going to become a pro player for me, but they're going to be a pro somewhere. So I want them to be responsible. And I want them to understand how the world works and then transfer to wherever they go and know how, wow, that kid from Miracosta was, man, what a great young man. Frank, I'll take anyone from you anytime. And I want them to have this excellence attached to their name. And when they, they look at Miracosta at, on his resume or profile, that it just glows. That's what I'm trying to achieve. Well, you are achieving it. The reason why we're doing this in the podcast studio and not in some restaurant in Oceanside, because there's probably going to be four people walking through saying, Coach Frank, giving you a big hug. I've experienced it. It's so satisfying. Let, let's get to, because I want to really go human brain. Like, How does the human brain learn as it relates to cognitive ability? And how do you as a coach mold that and let's say we start off with eight year olds and let's go all the way all the way to eighteen. How does it learn, and and what are the tools that you use to teach people these different concepts as it relates to soccer? And here's why I'm asking this is because I think a lot of the skills that I learned as a coach in soccer, how to coach soccer, like you said, being a player is one thing, and then you're on the sideline and you're getting frustrated. Why don't they pass it to the right? You know, because you can see it so so easily. All of those skills that you learn in that one area, I believe, can be transferred to different areas. And that's what you just talked about right now. Hey, I'm trying to teach them a certain set of skills so they can analyze the situation, understand what the different factors are involved in it, and then be able to um, make the right decision in that moment, not only for you know, uh, winning a soccer game, but how do you apply that to a relationship with a significant other. And so I want you to talk about like, how do we take, you know, you're taking soccer and you're going, hey, I'm going to teach the life skills through soccer. And then it's transferable because it's so important in business that we teach our people these things and then they can use it and, and, and apply it to other situations that are in life. So talk about how do you take it and how do you teach it and what do you need to do? What's your role as, as a coach and as a leader? Okay. For those that are listening, I'm going to nerd out in my field. I'm going to keep it in soccer because this is what I know. The four-year-old player, we engage them in the four components of our game. Soccer is broken into four components and you can do this in your field. And I challenge you to do that. Soccer is technical, tactical, physical, and psychosocial. Think about that for a second. Technical, the technique of our game. That's the thing that we eventually want to really focus on with younger players the most. Tactical, we're not going to talk about that much for the four, five, six, and seven-year-old. We're really going to focus more on their technical abilities. Physical, 
I mean, that's coming. It's going to always be there. They're going to need to run and jump and skip, and they're going to do that. But they're exploring that right now. Psychosocial, it plays a big part of things throughout their playing career. It's the most underdeveloped and least understood of all of them. And there's six subcomponents to the psychosocial component of soccer. Four components of the game, the psychosocial component, there's six subcomponents to it. I don't even know them all, but I'm going to tell you, that's where more work needs to be done, is understanding how the human brain works within, how these emotions work, how the player is coming into their environment, their team environment, what baggage they're carrying in. Let me just give you some examples. If the player is Anya Kohler, her dad was of German descent, went to Germany to play, has a German father. He loves Borussia Dortmund or he loves Bayern München. Think about this. And she grew up wearing a Bayern München kit. What kind of access to the game does she have? Do you think she's touched the ball before when she's four years old showing up? Okay. How about Frank Zimmerman? His dad's from Indiana. Basketball was his dad's sport. Mama's from Texas. Football was her family sport. The only reason I played soccer was because I had a lung problem and the Navy corpsman, the Navy doctor said that, you're, you know, there's this new sport called soccer. You should take your kid to go play out in town. They have a new league. That's the only reason I got introduced to the sport. Was that to help you develop To help my lung capacity. Oh, wow. That's the only way. Now it's my life, right? So you have two children I just gave an example of that got introduced to the game with two completely different cultural influences. So now I've got these two kids that are on this team, one with a family history, and there's a lot in Oceanside with cultural influences. Most of them are from Germany. They're from Mexico or Central America or wherever. And I have to know my audience, right? And there might be this kid, Mexican American kid running around with the ball. He's got all these skills coming in. And there's a kid that's got the shin guards on the outside of their socks and doesn't know what they're doing, right? And so you have to understand those things, right? So now there might be a kid that doesn't want to leave their mom for the first three practices and is holding on to their mom or their dad. And you can't feel attacked by that. Now let's fast forward to six and seven. Psychosocially, they can handle maybe one friend. You could start to introduce passing. Where they're sharing the ball. With one friend. One friend. Maybe. Right. Maybe. They're playing 4v4, but it's really 1v5 or 1v6 or 1v7. <laughs> it's not 4v4. Bumblebee ball. It's bumblebee ball. Yeah. Right? So then the next year they had goalkeepers in at 7v7. But they're just learning and the parents go crazy because they think it's real soccer now, but they don't really know. And so when you talk about the cognitive development, now we got to introduce shape and we have to introduce defending in lines and we have to introduce all these concepts and they have to cover a lot of ground. It gets very difficult, Mark, you know, it gets very difficult for the coach to teach these things. And the players are part-time rec players on the rec side. But now we have competitive teams, and some of those competitive teams are very high performing. Okay, so let's so focus our attention there. I want to make this point here because the four aspects of it is before we can have the team collectively 
be able to be successful. And and this is the the thing that I did wrong with Anya's team. To be frank with you, when I was that was my first team, I spent a lot of time on shape, right? But guess who was directing everything from the sideline? It was me. And when we were playing against another team, we were killing them. Yeah. They didn't have when two years later came down, when the other team had learned how to be really strong on the ball, because I didn't spend a lot of time on the personal readiness of the player, right? I spent more time on this and it was the parents were happy. And then when they're 10 years old, the parents are mad. Hey, why are we losing this game? And it's because I didn't spend enough time on the personal aspect. And I think that's a great point that you're making in soccer too, is what when you teach soccer, hey, you have to have them feel comfortable on the ball. They have to have the personal readiness to be able to make decisions and feel comfortable with that before we can have them be really successful at the collective readiness. But but Mark, hindsight is twenty twenty, Because your understanding of Piaget looking back, right, completely different. And then with Liesl's team, it was better. Oh, and with Sophie's team? I mean, excuse me, with Sophie's team, it was better. Yeah. Well, I ha- I handed that team off. I didn't spend hardly any time yeah. on the collective readiness. Yeah. I spent all time on on that. When I handed it off to the next coach, it was they could more easily then go collective. And so I think the, the point here, as people are listening and we talk about making success in anything in life, is we can certainly give them vision for what the full game looks like, but it's really important to focus on if we want people to be successful, we got to help them with the personal readiness. They got to help them with the skills, the technical aspect of the game, and not worry. Actually, I'm going to so- take it one step further, Mark. Okay, we have to drill into the personal readiness when their characteristics, in this case, their age, determine so. When they're four years old and their personal development determines that that's when they should be selfish, we let them be selfish. Ah, yes. They're egocentric at four years old. So why do we ask them to share? Be selfish. We create an environment. You know, in Belgium, they play 2v2. Why do we make them play 4v4? The Belgians say they're not supposed to share. So instead of a bunch of 1v1, they play 2v2. It's brilliant. Right? And the technical aspect that they it learn. It played up. Way up. That's why Belgium is doing so well out of nowhere. This tiny little country producing all these wonderful players. Yeah. Right? 2v2. Wow. 2v2. Then no they go to 5v5. Ways. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, wow. It makes so much sense, right? Right. Okay. So you could translate that into business, right? You got to meet people where they are. If you got someone that has a ton of charisma, Use that for your business. If you got someone that can close a deal, use that for your. Why are you gonna take some six five person and put them in a in a in a Prius? Why are you gonna right? You see, you see my point? Yeah. And have them drive to L.A. every day. I mean, no, you don't do that. Right. You you gotta you gotta use people effectively, right? You gotta use people for the right job at the right time. Here's another thing, in my industry, thirteen year olds tend to grow. We know this. What happens when you grow? You get a little clumsy. Sometimes you're developing pain. Osgood Slaughters. Anya once said, Dad, Coach Frank hates me. (laughs) Yeah, you did. You were growing, and I was forcing you to do some things because 
the science says that when the player is growing, you have them work on strength and power development because your skills are going to fail them. And I was forcing you to do some extra work. And you were like, Coach Frank hates me, Dad. And I was kind of distracting you from the skill work to push you through this growth. Right? Patrick Burns, Ed's son, yes. was going through it. I put him on JV because he was failing. He was like in tears for some games. Right? After he was getting all these scholarship offers a couple of years later, it made more sense to him. Right. But you got to protect players from themselves, too. But 3.3 million kids quit every year because coaches don't understand that those growth periods happen and they think, oh, you suck. And they badger the kid or put them in bad situations and don't protect them from, I mean, kids grow. Yeah. And when you're growing and you feel like one leg's longer than the other and you can't perform because you're a little clumsy for six months, the coach gives up on you at a club like Surf, they just find a replacement. Right. Right. You finish growing. Then we put you to surf. That's exactly what happened, Anya. Like Anya, Anya right was now. like a giraffe on ice. I remember waiting a year or something. That's we, exactly yeah, right. We, it was like sixth or sixth grade. I remember you were going to pick me up after school to go down there, and you're like, "Hey, we decided that we're not going to go this year." That was that was because well, I called Frank. Yeah. There was a couple things. Yeah. And then Taylor Brust was mm -hmm. was two years later. You know why? Mm -hmm. You know why? Didn't have a stay-home mom. Mm. Did you know that? Did I ever tell you that? No. Because your mom was stay-home mom, she could get you there, but Taylor's mom was working. Yeah. We tailor-made every single one of those things around right. the family unit. Right. So that your mom could get you there, and you were done growing. Taylor could have gone at the same time, but her mom had to work, and we couldn't get her down there on time, so we just moved her up and just waited. Mm -hmm. We I mean, there was a lot of thought that went into all that stuff. and. Does it really matter? It worked out great for you. It worked out great for her. It worked. That's how. That's what we did. People don't need to know all those details. We're good at what we do. We just didn't need all the glory, you know. Now we don't have to send anyone anywhere. That's the nice difference. We just do it all ourselves. But that complex kind of changed everything. Yeah, that's but, awesome. As it relates to teaching the technical aspect, because we don't learn how to. You know, when we're given a push pass, we don't learn how to lock our ankle and follow through and what our core should be and how we hold our arms. So when people start off, like as a coach, like probably one of the biggest things I learned in my third year of coaching, because I went to that youth course, was just the, the ability to be patient. Yeah. And, and through Piaget, it wasn't about watching just a video. It was actually interacting with the world and really, I guess, working through failure. And so, so talk us through, like, how, how do you position your mind as, your, as a coach and a leader? Because this is, a, you know, we're talking about learning and development. So how do you position it so they can, they can feel success, get success, let enough go without over, you know, because you want to sit there every single time they do it, <laughs> do it the first time. And then they do it wrong the second time again, and you're giving them too much guided advice. Dis guided discovery, Mark. If you set things up with guided discovery as the intended outcome, let me give you an example. If I want my players to move from point A to point B on a field, let's just take this field. And I want Mark and Anya to move from here to there with the ball, right? But I don't want to say, I, I don't want these young players, we're talking four and five years old. 
to, to, I don't want to tell you what to do like the robot coach used right. to. Mark and Anya, let's move across the field and you guys throw the ball with your hands. And my goal is to guide you to discover the answer. This is going to sound really touchy-feely for the old board dog that I am, right? Okay, but science has taught me, I don't say don't stop or don't. I let you throw it. Okay, then here comes Otessa and Lupe. And they put the ball on the ground and they use their feet. And I go, whoa, Otessa and Lupe, you use your feet. You're my favorite players. Now, Mark and Anya go, well, I want to be the favorite player. <laughs> I didn't say you were wrong. I didn't say you did something bad. I just praised them. Right. Guided discovery. Right. I guided them to the answer without ridiculing or... Or giving them the answer. Or giving it. I guided them by setting up the parameters. That's a classic teaching technique, right? right? So you set the parameters up and they can't help but find their way to it. And then you prompt, prompt, prompt. Do you know who was the master of prompting and coaching? Jose Ocampo. To this day, we still use him. Skills, skills, right? Release this one word prompts. Now, I don't know how you can use that in business, but we do it all the time in our club. And Jose Ocampo was the best I've ever seen at it, just to let you know, Anya. But anyway, <clears throat> you can prompt people and, and set up the environment where they can find the answer. No, I love the prompting. And I, I sat on the sideline and watched Jose coach Anya's team. And instead of saying, you know, I want you to do a step over and then I want you to put the ball between the person's legs. The only thing he said was skills. That's it. What's he then, doing? What's he doing? Right. Sorry to interrupt you. What's he doing? Yeah, it's guided discovery. Okay. Well, no, actually, he's not. This is more tapping well, into what? What's he tapping into? Pre-existing knowledge. Right. Think about teaching. So he's establishing at Surf. I think they used to have this thirty, thirty, thirty thing. They would spin practice. They would do the first thirty was. I, I think they used to do it this way. First 30 was skill, second 30 was small group, last 30 was game, almost always, right? So then so then they would have a skill base. They would work on skills. And most most people follow something, but they were like like under Colin Chester's, they were like that, like robotic about it. Stay on this. Because okay. this is this is what I want to have come out is 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 that piece. So talk more about that. Give us a give us a progression of a training. And how you progress through that, even just using that model. So, so what, what this very successful club south of us, very affluent community would do is, you know, a lot of teams, 50 teams, the director had a way he would do his figure eights and he would manage his club and everyone was kind of on a clock and every, like the first 30% of the practice, 30 minutes, I mean, they'd be working on individual skills. And if everyone was doing what they're supposed to be doing, they would learn a skill or they'd be working on a skill. All the players would be working on individual skill development. Personal readiness yeah, yes. to with Correct. the ball. Okay, yep. yes. Okay. And then they would transition into small some small group activity. And the coaches had, in most cases, the ability to voir dire into an area that the team needed. And then they would move into a game at the end. What's the role of the coach in each one of those different areas? Well, I think in, in my humble opinion, it would be to figure out what the team needs based on the performance from the weekend and make adjustments. Now, remember, 
my involvement with that club, I fed Anya to that club, my daughter to that club. My club has a similar system. We we just are a little different in what we do because our teams are much more developmental. This club was full of teams that were high-level college-bound players, so they all were tracking differently. So the players that made their way to that club were all looking at college, almost every one of them, where we have a lot of players that maybe half our teams were like that. And it was very competitive. Parents are paying a lot of money, expecting a product, and he had to be able to defend that product. That's an important, what I just said is an important thing. They're defending a product. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I never have to worry in my club as much. I do more now than ever. But I didn't have to worry about defending my product. People almost don't care. Like at Oceanside High, I should be careful, but our parents don't, don't they, not as much as they do at like Torrey Pines High. They don't check on their kids as much. I hate that. I hate that they're not as present. They don't advocate as much. I, and I wish they would advocate more. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like they should be more involved. And I, if, if any Oceanside parents hear this, call and check on your student. Come ask questions. Right. Advocate for your, if your player in my club. Parent involvement is the key to success for your kid. Advocacy is the key right. for success. Yeah, that's awesome. What are you most proud of? My kids. I'm very proud of my kids. I'm very proud of my relationship with my mom. I'm proud of the work I've done. I think soccer has helped change the image of Oceanside. I think mission accomplished with that. Billy Graham said that a coach will touch more lives in one year than most people touch in a lifetime. I think I resemble that remark. I think I've touched a few lives. But I would like to say that, you know, I think I'm most proud of the relationships that I've been able to develop, you know, outside of my family. I, I think the relationships I've been able to develop through my work in Oceanside are what I'm most proud of. It's it's just been it's been very fulfilling. Very fulfilling work. Yeah, I'll 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 correct you on one thing. It's not I think I've helped change Oceanside. You have changed Oceanside. And you've changed, you know, not only the lives of the people you've coached, but Frank, you're teaching a lot of these children who come from, from you've, you've shared this with them, come from not the best homes, and you're teaching them key life skills they're not just going to use on a soccer field, but they're going to translate to other areas of their life to be you know, a better husband or a better father or a better member of the community or, or better at their work. And those skills that you, you teach, they last generations. And so you should feel really, really proud. I mean, for those who don't know, when you think of when you think of soccer, and you think of soccer in Southern California, Frank's name comes up in the top three all the time. And if you think of soccer in Oceanside, all I see is your big, beautiful face, Frank. I mean, it's just it's it's amazing the impact that you've had and the platform that you've used to be able to do that. I can't tell you. I'm probably going to get emotional. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, Mark. We've 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 accomplished some good stuff. I appreciate you too. I learned a lot from you. Even though I came from the nuclear submarine force and you know how to treat people. It's uh I'm really proud to 
to have the relationship that we have. So that feeling is absolutely mutual, man. Yeah. So I didn't know I was going to cry, but that's all right. I drop I drop the Markisms all the time. Yeah. I just told someone yesterday: hire for attitude, train for skill. Yeah. And I'm uh, I'm super proud of everything that you're doing, and I'm honored that you invited me here today. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of the wisdom that you have and all of your experiences that that you've shared with us today are extremely valuable for our community. So again, I just want to thank you for being on Surfacing Leaders. Yeah, man. Appreciate you. Thanks, Mark. That was fun. You made me cry, man. <laughs> Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.